with more girls being athletes from a younger age, we need more data. We need more understanding to know how to help girls and women because of our hormones, because of our pain tolerances. Even you know, we have weaker necks. There's so many things that are physiologically and biologically different from us versus men and boys that it's not one size fits all for treatment. Mm -hmm. And every concussion is unique and it presents uniquely. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Powering Up, our cross-generational podcast about leadership, power, and gender through a female lens. I'm Ann Doyle, author of Powering Up, How America's Women Achievers Become Leaders. And I'm Monica Doyle, the millennial voice of this podcast. I'm also a huge hockey fan, um, not just a fan, but I also play and teach young kids. Uh, I have lots of questions for today's guest for sure, because she is an expert on something that I am a little too familiar with, concussions and youth sports, um, because I'm just recovering from a concussion recently. Yeah, oh, yes. You have way too much experience in this topic, unfortunately, than I do, which is why I know you're going to have some great questions for our guest, uh, Joanne Gerstner, who is a journalist and also co-author of um, a fantastic book. It's called Back in the Game, Why Concussion Doesn't Have to End Your Athletic Career. Uh, but before we start that, um, I just wanted to mention uh, that I've just returned from four days in Toronto attending the World Leadership Conference of the International Women's Forum. Um, this is this amazing, um, it's a, a, a bi-nomination kind of an organization of um, women trailblazers, um, change agents, boat rockers, um, and then there are about 7,000 members now from um, every continent. And there were 1,100 of these amazing women um, in Toronto at this conference. Uh, so I want to share a little bit more about that at the end of the podcast. But if my voice sounds a little strange, it's because I was probably yelling over the music at the, uh, the closing gala where uh, 500 women are on the dance floor. <laughs> so let's get going with Joanne. Hello. Hi. Um, so Joanne, um, just to get into conversation, she is an award-winning sports journalist, a journalism professor at Michigan State University, and author of what has been described as the definitive book on concussions for youth athletes as well as their parents and coaches. She is the sports journalist in the resident uh, uh, in residence at State of Michigan University of Journalism. In 2019, Michigan Governor Gretchen Whitmer appointed Joanne to the State of Michigan's first women in sports task force which is sounds super cool could you tell us a little bit about that joanne sure absolutely uh, first of all it's an incredible honor to be here and you're a trailblazer for us and <laughs> women in sports media so thank you for all you've done and monica hockey rules so <laughs> yeah. thank you so much i feel at home here yeah the state of michigan women's task force is a really innovative project nobody in the country has ever done anything like this before it's specifically focused on the 50th anniversary of Title IX, which is coming up incredibly in three years, 2022. And specifically, what the governor has tasked us with under the leadership of the Secretary of State, uh, Jocelyn Benson, we need to examine where are women and girls in this state, from youth all the way up to the professional levels, and then also into the front offices, athletic directors. So it's a full scope of an athletic life. And you're actually a perfect example. You took your love of hockey and your skill and now made it your career, which is great. 
what opportunities need to be present for women, where are we, we're surveying, and we ideally would like to come up with some really strong recommendations for the governor to pursue legislatively or through maybe tax inducements, things like that. So we've got a big task ahead of us. The group is amazing. We have Olympians, Olympic medal winners, athletic directors, legends such as Carol Hutchins from the University of Michigan. And we all come from different walks of life, but we all have made sports a significant part of our life. So it's been pretty fascinating so far. Well, as long as we started with that part of the conversation, um, let's l just uh, a little more about that. I mean, because I, I didn't realize that it was unprecedented in the United States. This is totally unique. Of course, I was thrilled when I saw that. And I also recommended um, Dr. Ramona Cox, who is the assistant athletic director for uh, Detroit Pal, a police athletic director, who did her PhD, as maybe you know, in the importance and impact of sports for at-risk girls. Um, we had her on as a guest, but um, maybe just uh, take maybe just one piece of that big thing that you think is most compelling in terms of this work. Oh wow! Well, <laughs> that, that's that alone is a challenge. Yeah. But I think for me specifically, the whole concept of why we do not have any—we only have two women in the state of Michigan at the Division One level. But actually, one woman at Western Michigan, Kathy Beauregard, who's an athletic director. Um, we mm. I can't speak for. University of Michigan. I don't know if they considered any women in their search with Ward Manuel becoming the athletic director, but I can tell you Michigan State had a close, had zero search. Nothing happened. They just appointed one. Mm -hmm. So no women got to interview for that job. Mm -hmm. As athletic director. As athletic director, about, yeah. Very important so university. So we like to have that discussion that why women aren't being considered for these jobs. And we now have a whole group of post Title IX babies like myself that our former athletes, we come with multiple degrees and experience, why are we not in the mix? Mm -hmm. And we're listening, we're listening very carefully right now, we're going across the state, um, we'll be soon at um, St. Clair Community College having a meeting and a listening session. So we're gonna be across the state listening to people about the needs, but I think that's an interesting thing for us as women to break through, to be true change agents, especially in college sports, we need to be having an agency to be on top to yeah. have the say in the process. Well, and I think it's a subject that has been brushed off with a line that I know we've all heard too many times before, which is, well, women just aren't interested in this, which <laughs> is absolute BS. You it's know. actually worse. Yeah. No, I, I'll tell you, what the, the line that I heard is I just came back from the women in college sports, women leaders in college sports convention in Phoenix. It was a thousand of the most powerful women in college sports. The line that gets used is, well, we have a major football program, so we're not sure if we can have a woman run the athletic department because how would that look to you know our donors and things like that? Well, what do Michigan and Michigan State both have? Powerful football programs, but then flip that over. Western Michigan's got a pretty darn good football program, had a coach named P.J. Fleck, who's setting the world on fire right now in Minnesota, Kathy Beauregard hired him and nurtured his talent. So mm -hmm. I can turn that argument around. Uh, there's an amazing woman right now who's the AD at the University of Virginia. They're doing really well. So that that lie dies pretty quickly, but the problem is it's football still rules the roost and mm -hmm. they get overdue influence in the process. Well, and I think it's important that we start calling out you know lines like that for what they are, which is just straight up sexism. Like, there's nothing more to it. You can't put any other bows and ribbons on it. It's just sexism to say things like, well, women just aren't interested in this. It's like, okay, have you checked? Have you asked? Have you looked? 
because if you do just a cursory search, you're going to find that there are a lot of women interested in all of these things, and they want to run them, they want to be a part of them, and they want to nurture these programs. <laughs> Absolutely, and the whole thing is this group that I was with, like I, like I said, a thousand women, amazing, dynamic, brilliant. Um, yeah, they could run anything in the world. So if they got in the room and got a chance to interview, I think they'd win the war. Mm -hmm. And the whole notion that a guy just because of his gender is therefore competent in football, which is ergo then competent to run the business of athletics, that lie also needs to die pretty quickly because I know a lot of guys that I know more football than they do. So yeah. we'll just leave that right there. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and that that's still a big piece of this uh, in terms of the whole topic of females and sports and everything. Is there this attitude, deeply ingrained gender bias, uh, against women in any kind of leadership role or even playing sports. And uh, I remember Carol Hutchins, I mean, who's, as you said, the legendary um, multiple championships uh, softball coach at the University of Michigan. She was telling me, this was years ago when I was working on my book, she's interviewed in my book, um, she told the story about when they were, um, you know, going to replace, they were looking for a new head basketball coach. And she's sitting in there with the athletic directors and the other coaches, and the athletic director is saying, we are going to go after and interview all the best coaches in the country for this job. And you know what, of course, what Carol said is, oh, are we going to interview Pat Summit at the University of Tennessee? And, of course, there was this dead silence mm -hmm. in the room. And, she, and, and well, well, no, well, well, she's one of the best coaches in the country. So why aren't we interviewing her? And there we go, over and over and over. Yeah. Mm -hmm. and, we well, have a, and we have a bigger lie right now going on, too, is that there are more men moving in to take the jobs head coaching women's sports. I'm glad you brought that up. It's become more attractive financially. So right now, um, especially in terms of women's basketball, which you could argue is the marquee right now, there, we're tipping the tide that there are more women, more women being coached by men and vice versa. But here's the thing. If Tom Izzo were to retire tomorrow and I'd apply for his job, let's say I was Tara Vanderveer, I don't know if I'd get fairly considered. So that bias... You know you would not get fairly yeah. considered. You're I'm dead nice. certain. I'm dead certain, but I'm, I'm holding out a tiny shred of hope for progress. But that's the, that's the real disingenuousness of this process, that the, it is open to the men mm -hmm. for equal opportunity on both sides. But for the women, it's a very closed set. And the whole thing we is... We can't you, even coach our own freaking sports. Well, but here's yeah. the thing. With, if you go and look and see that Tom Izzo has a ton of assistance and, you know, and Joanne Howard's got a ton of assistance, name any coach you want. They have Shashevsky. They've got an entire fleet of guys behind them, you know, yeah. charting whatever. And there's not space for even one woman. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And with the number of high-level, amazingly talented female basketball players we have that are coming out that want to get into analysis and coaching and motivation, yeah, it's kind of weird that we have more women coaching in the NBA right now mm -hmm. than we do in the yeah. college game. Yeah. You think it'd be harder to get to the NBA, but the NBA is being more progressive right now. So, don't get it. And in terms of that, of speaking up about this, um, I'm sure you heard uh, the, the fantastic head basketball coach at Notre Dame this, this Muffet. year. Muffet. Muffet, you know, and how she made a big issue uh, at the NCAA championships about, I'm not going to hire any more men to coach on my team because we're just sick and tired of this complete imbalance. And, of course, they were outraged about that. You know, the media was outraged about the fact that she said she wouldn't hire any men to be on her coaching team. But nobody's outraged about the fact that no women 
are being hired. It's not even mentioned. People don't even think about it. It's just yeah. accepted. And the whole thing is, look at the Detroit Pistons, and you know, not to call it the Pistons. I mean, take any team you want, your favorite team. You know, it took up, up until the last two years for women to crack even into sitting on the last seat on the bench, which makes no sense because we have the WNBA, some of the highest level in the world of basketball IQ among our women. There's no excuse. So mm-hmm. there's cracks forming, but I, you know, the ice is still pretty stable right now for yeah. the sexist paradigms that we have. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, I want to say that um, I love doing this podcast with Monica because, um, you know, we want this to be a cross-generational conversation. But I have great hope for this whole very big uh, millennial generation because, I mean, I see them catching fire. Uh, you know, that they are – I think they were told they could do anything and be anything growing up. We wanted them to see that. And it was fine for a while, even in terms of entry-level opportunities, but then they started running into the trouble. And I think they're shocked by it, and they're getting mad. And I want them mad. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, I think they're not going to settle for the incremental progress that we had to settle for. And so uh, tear it up, Monica, mm-hmm. and any of the millennials who are listening. Do you agree, Joanne? Well, I'm a Gen X, so this <laughs> is actually a classic example of Gen X being forgotten. i got to <laughs> stand up for my people awesome. because we, got, we don't exist, you know? And I was just laughing about this the other day. I was listening to someone talking. Oh, actually, millennials, you're out now. It's Generation Z. They were talking about Generation <laughs> Z catching fire, almost what you said. Zoomers. And it's Zoomers. like, um, Gen X here? Oh, yeah, never mind. You guys don't count. So I think we are kind of trying to blow up some ridges, mm-hmm. in, you know, to help, you know, pave the path for all of us, because I think our two generations are more aligned than we like to admit. And the good thing is, like, we're old school enough that we know how the old systems worked, but we're young enough that we can disrupt and open the doors and let everybody in. And I just know for my tribe, we're mad. Mm-hmm. Good. We're done. No, we're done in that. When you say your tribe, do you mean Gen genera- X? Generation X, women in I sports want media. you mad. I mean, it's I- about time you got mad because your generation, which was a smaller generation than my baby boomers, but you tended to be not the boat rockers. You were the I'm no feminist, but I want those seeds, but well, you weren't boat rockers. And I want you mad. I got to tell you, though. I work with students every day. The word feminism is not used by any of them. Mm-hmm. They're post They're post. Um, labeling of things and I find it's a very interesting um, kind of a a notion of boomers that label everything my students like you know what we want everyone to succeed we're all together in this we need the men in the room to advocate for the women we need the women in the room to advocate for those that are you know non-conforming we need the you know the people it's a collective thing this division of things has only resulted in people being divided. And when people are divided, the power structure always wins because they exploit the, the fissures. Well, and seeing things from my seat, I'd, I'd like to think that millennials are trying to take the power that both um, boomers and Gen X has been trying to put out there. You know, boomers had lots of labels because they needed to get this info out there. And Gen X, you know, kind of tried to do away with labels because they're like, let's look at the bigger picture. And I'd like to think that millennials are kind of doing a little bit of both. Exactly. Um, and, and I think that kind of brings us back to even this sports conversation of, you know, getting, getting that view out there. You know, Muffet saying, I'm not hiring any more men. And people get outraged at that. But it's like, wait, why did she say that? Yeah. She said that because women aren't getting any opportunities and we're giving every opportunity available to men and she's like 
I'm done. I'm not going to do it anymore. I'm going to give women opportunities because they lack the fundamental ability to get them. So I, I'd like to think that... Not the ability to get them, but the opportunity. The opportunity, yeah. Yeah, yeah. They got, they've got the ability. They've got the ability, but but there's a roadblock. You know, Lots of them. There's a roadblock, and the roadblock is something as simple as these dismissive terms like women just aren't interested in sports and how does that look to our donors you know stuff like that it's like what do you mean how does that look to donors donors don't like women (laughs) like that's the only thing i hear when you say something like that is that donors don't like women you might not want the answer to that question i mean i think i kind of know the answer to that question but i think saying it for what it is is how you get attention call it out no i I agree with the call out culture and and more specifically we need more um, just this whole need for women in sports at all levels also comes back to what you've been going through with concussions in that the research is needed on female brains. That oh right now gosh. the per- preponderance of our research, which is so necessary, but it's also post-mortem. We can't check your brain out the way we need to for full science until you're not using it anymore. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of the stuff that we have is not based on female athletes. And it's fantastic that a lot of our Heroes such as Mia Hamm and Brandi Chastain and our hockey players, they want to donate their brains. But the problem is, God willing, they're going to be using their brains for another 40, 50 years. (laughs) So we better not be hanging by the phone waiting for that call. So what are we doing in the meantime? And with more girls being athletes from a younger age, we need more data. We need more understanding to know how to help girls and women because of our hormones, because of our pain tolerances, even you know, we have weaker necks. There's so many things that are physiologically and biologically different from us versus men and boys that it's not one size fits all for treatment. Mm-hmm. And every concussion is unique and it presents uniquely. And we need to, as a society, become more respectful of that process. It's not like, you, you know, like I broke my arm, I have a cast, I'll be done in six weeks. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's brain injuries are much more gray. than that well and also just to put things in context a little bit so Anne actually gave me this amazing book when I was um, probably a teenager called The Female Brain I still have it (laughs) I haven't read all of it but I read a portion of it which has just like interested me so much was which was that they didn't do research on female brains until like the 70s or something anything any and and so it was written by this like wonderful neurosurgeon or something And in the very first chapter of the book, she talks about how there was no research done on female brains for a very long time. And the reasoning that they gave for that was variables. The female (laughs) brain has more variables than men's brains because we have, like, these rushes of hormones during menstruation and stuff like that. And it was, like, the biggest cop-out that I've ever heard in my life. And I remember reading that book as, like, a 17-year-old and being like, what the hell? What do you mean they didn't research us? Like, we weren't human beings or something. We have no data. I mean, I did a story for the Detroit News uh, a few years ago about how we have very little data on how to advise elite female athletes during and after pregnancy. So the data they gave from the U.S. Olympic Committee was like, okay, keep your heart rate within this and do that. And some of these women were coming back like, yeah, but my heart rate was never that to begin with. (laughs) And then they questioned, where did you get this information from? Mm -hmm. It turned out it was their guidelines for men. Mm -hmm. Like, how many of your men have had children? And this whole concept of coming back too quickly. And that also fits in with how Nike was recently, thank God, shamed by athletes saying, look, I'm a mother 
or I'm going to be a mother soon. As soon as an athlete cannot perform under athletes' uh, contracts from Nike, you don't get paid. So there was no pregnancy leave. There was no accommodation for having a C-section and not being able to train for the Boston Marathon. There was no accommodation for you had to be on bed rest at seven months and can't run the high hurdles. And, you know, Nike, you know, likes to say we're so pro-women, you know, we're you know, just do it. And here's Serena. And then on the flip side, you have, you know, world-class Olympians such as Allison Felix saying, I didn't make a cent. I lost everything because I had a child and you knew this and you didn't care. Now, mm -hmm. thankfully that has changed, but now the whole thing has come out with the, with the Oregon Project. And What's that? The Oregon Project is a high-level running project they had in um, Oregon, you know, <laughs> Nike's headquarters. <laughs> and Alberto Salazar, who was a high-level coach, high-performance coach, who was just banned for giving steroids, for performance-enhancing steroids, a lot of awful things have come out about how he body shamed women. Oh yeah, they could, he harassed them. He screamed at them. Um, a very, very high level women have come out and said that they felt they didn't have a choice but to train with this because it was a Nike and Nike owns track and field basically. Mm -hmm. And there is an amazing runner named Mary Kane who was the oh, yeah. best, best high school girl ever, and she wrote and had a video in the New York Times last week, very candid about how she was suicidal and was cutting herself was starving herself and yet it wasn't good enough she yeah. left and that's what we have so to your point about science and the female body and what are recommended for both maintaining performance but also recovering both from pregnancy and also injury a lot of people are guessing still yeah. we don't have the evidence but the good news is this more women are getting in the game so there's more data there is more and more women having long successful careers like venus williams is going to be 40 wow. serena's 38 yeah. Um, we've got Kim Kleister's coming back we've, so, you know, after having two, three kids. So we're getting more and more data about what to do and how to frame things. But like with you, with your concussion, hopefully you had a really good neurologist, sports neurologist to help you or whatever, because otherwise... I didn't. <laughs> oh, Let's no. get into that in a minute. We want to hear about this and, and any advice Joanne can give you, but we kind of backed into talking about your book, so I want to make it really clear to our listeners about sure. your book. And um, the book is called uh, Back in the Game, Why Concussion Doesn't Have to End Your Athletic Career. So tell us why you wrote the book and maybe the key, key message and who this book is for. Yeah, absolutely. I was uh, privileged enough to do a fellowship at the University of Michigan in 2012-13 with one of the best sports neurologists in the country, uh, Dr. Jeff Kutcher. And he does USA Hockey, he does all the people that end up getting their brains in a concussed state. And I spent a whole year embedded with the neurology program and I had to become like a junior resident and learn all the stuff. And I sat in his clinic and watched all kinds of athletes come in from little kids to Olympians. And the message I saw from the parents was fear. Either fear that their children are going to have some sort of brain ailment or that their children might turn depressed and suicidal. Or on the other side, an absolute dismissal of concussions. Like, oh, the snowflakes, I got hit 15 times, I got my bell rung. Both sides are wrong. Clinically speaking, most concussions resolve themselves in, you know, seven to you know, 10 days. I mean, it depends, but concussions heal. Mm -hmm. If you have symptoms beyond that, they're called post-concussive syndromes, and they're not mixed up. They shouldn't be, but they're always mixed up. Mm -hmm. And the main thing that we wanted to communicate in this book, and this book came out of my time at Michigan observing hundreds of patients, is 
people don't know what to do with a concussion. They don't find out until you have one. There's no preemptive thought. A lot of our pediatricians, ER people who are fantastic, they are not trained in how to handle concussion. They're trained how to handle other things. So by the time somebody might get treatment, they might have already seen a few doctors and gotten bad advice and gotten into other parts of, hey, we want you to sleep for two weeks. That's wrong. You shouldn't do something like that. That makes it worse. So Mm -hmm. we really want to be very frank about what concussion is, isn't. What we know and what we don't know specifically about CTE, we do not yet have a direct provable causal link between CTE, which is chronic traumatic encephalopathy, which basically is a degenerative brain disease, uh, which can only be diagnosed after you're dead. Um, we don't have the link yet. This People, is what's happening with the football players and the boxers and things. That's, that what, they, that's, that's what they're yeah. finding post-mortem. But here's the thing, though. We all have some degree probably of CTE in our heads. We don't do uh, autopsies anymore in the general population. So we don't know what we're mm-hmm. walking around with. Mm-hmm. And, you know, dementia is a part of our life. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. I've had Alzheimer's in my family, things like that. So we don't know what we don't know yet. Well, You've had a couple of concussions, haven't you? So. I think I've had two. My dad says I've had three, and he tends to be right about that stuff. So I'm going to go with my dad and say that I've had three. Okay. Um, the the first one being from soccer, getting hit in the head with a soccer ball. Mm-hmm. Um, but the other two being from hockey. Uh, this last one was very interesting because it was easily the most informed I've ever been about concussions while having one. Um, being a coach, I've had to take lots of concussion courses so and and even when I went into the doctor to get diagnosed um, she said wow you know a lot about concussions and it's like well it's kind of my job I have to know if one of my children has a concussion (laughs) and um, and it was interesting especially considering that this was just recreational adult hockey you know there's nobody around to diagnose you. Mm-mm. You know, I play with doctors, and even they were like, I don't know what to do. Should you should go back out for another shift? I did go back out for another shift. After I got off the ice, I <laughs> Joanne said, is wagging her finger, <laughs> no. I, I went back out for another shift. As soon as I got off the ice, I thought to myself, I should not have done that. For me, personally, when I've gotten concussions, I haven't felt anything immediately afterwards except that I hit my head. Because, and let me explain that to you, someone who has a concussion or suspected of being concussed, because obviously only a medical professional can say you are a concussion. So mm-hmm. self-diagnosis is awesome, but real diagnosis is even better. Better, yeah. So we'll go with that. Um, specifically, it's like saying to uh, someone who's drunk, hey, I can drive, I'm fine, I'm good. Someone who has a suspected brain injury is the last person <laughs> who is a reliable source on asking how they are. Yeah. Because literally your brain is doing things, it's almost like it's your brain crashed and it's like running through a checklist. Yep. So of course you think you're fine. And here's the bigger problem when we talk about this culture in our book, the warrior mentality. War- oh my the, gosh, that's play the through best pa- way to say Play it. through pain, mm-hmm. keep going. We celebrate athletes that play through you know all kinds of maladies. They're tough, they're this, and they're that. And of course, if they don't play, we then make allusions about their toughness. I also want to hear, uh, I'm sure our listeners want to hear, a little bit about your personal journey too, in terms of, I mean, I, I just love your strength and your, uh, how did you get that? I mean, look back, uh, tell us a little bit about that little girl as she was discovering who she was and what kind of power she could have in her life. Well, I grew up on the east side of Detroit, so I'm a native Detroiter. I'm from Gross Point, and I grew up in a family. I'm the oldest, and 
Uh, my mom's actually an immigrant from Germany and my dad's first generation. So his parents were immigrants from Germany. And we just had this mindset of working really hard and trying to do your best. And my parents let me be an athlete any way I wanted to. I was always, you know, athletic and I grew up in a neighborhood of all boys. So if I wanted to play, I better play what they're playing. And I just, you know, I'm, I knew at an early age that I'd love to write and I was very privileged to have grown up in Detroit, you know, in the late 70s and 1980s where there were impactful women everywhere. I never knew that women weren't sports writers because I read the news in the free press religiously and I saw so many women like Michelle Kaufman and Johnette Howard and Cynthia Lambert and yeah. you know, I can keep going Beverly Ekman and then later um, Angelique Shingelis. I mean, there's and Ann Doyle. And Ann Doyle. <laughs> well, we didn't watch Just TV as much. So okay, I'm right, sorry yeah. to tell you that. That was but, my era. That yeah, that's but, Amy, the but, women right, you're but talking the, about. But the yeah. empowerment of women was so yeah. strong that I never knew. I never knew until I got to college and when I had journalism professors telling me, "You're really good. You're really talented, but I don't think this is something that women should go into because you're going to take a lot of crap." And um, you're like crap. Oh, if I that can handle was crap. Ever reason to not do something? Well, but in, in truth, um, I think they were coming from a position of trying to protect me in a pre-internet world of crazy stuff. They just knew about the things that happened, like with Lisa Olson and the Patriots, yep. or Susan Slusser with the A's, uh, or even Tiger Williams with uh, <laughs> Cindy Lambert. So there was stuff. I mean. You know, we forget the 1984 Tigers, Kirk Gibson harassed the intern from the free press. So there is. Hey, I have my Kirk Gibson stories right in that book because I was covering him. One of the things uh, that broke my heart as a child was seeing when Bob Schembechler was the president of the Tigers. He actually sent a letter to the free press saying that no lady would ever be in a sports locker room. Basically victim shaming. but I, I kept going, and uh, I was yeah. really lucky. You know, I've worked in Flint, I've worked in Lansing, USA Today, New York Times, uh, ESPNW. I was one of the first people on the ground with ESPNW and helped shape that. And of course, at the Detroit News. And that was probably one of my proudest times to get to work for my hometown newspaper with the people that I know. And I covered the Pistons, the Olympics, and a lot of women's stories. That was kind of what I like to do. And I uh, decided I needed to do things more in depth. I was tired of doing game stories and all the usual stuff. So that's when I applied for the Night Walls Fellowship at the University of Michigan. I actually left ESPN for it. And it's really changed things because I find that I really enjoy deeper dives and I'm pretty good with the science. So that's a good thing. I'm better with the science than the science people are with the sports. So we kind of (laughs) meet in the middle. But I really now enjoy helping grow the sports journalism program at Michigan State. Um, We have a minor now in sports journalism. I help start the study abroad to Paris and Rome, where wow. we talk about cultural things. We, my, our students are getting jobs, their you know dream jobs at places. So we're making an impact and we're changing things. And more importantly, I take my presence very seriously in that for a lot of my students, both male and female, I might be the very first female sports media person they've ever been in contact with. So yeah. we talk a lot about gender, um, handling things. And obviously now the world is so much different you know, the speed of the death threats, the rape threats, you know, off of social media. Uh, You know, there's more of us in the industry, which is fantastic, but the amount of venom and hate that we take is also turned up. So we have a lot of active conversations about that Mm -hmm. and how to, you know, take care of yourself and how do you distinguish from a bozo from someone that actually does want to hurt you. Mm -hmm. So it's a very nuanced conversation, but, you know, I'm very lucky that I've had the career I set out, uh, you know, in third grade, I think I said I wanted to be a sports writer. So... 
here I am, <laughs> and for better or for worse. And I really think the contribution of women to the business, the chapter of what has happened here in Detroit needs to be a prominent part of the legacy because Detroit was more progressive at a time. We are more progressive than Chicago, Cleveland, Cincinnati, a lot of other major markets near us have ever been yeah. and at this point may ever be. Yeah, in terms of women in sports. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Anything else you want to ask about that? And then uh, let's wrap it up. Yeah, well, I mean, the biggest thing that, I want, that I've been thinking about through this whole thing is, you know, male allies you know I keep thinking about male allies because the women have been around fighting for ourselves for a very long time and we're going to keep fighting with or without you but wouldn't you like to be on the good side of history herstory so like what I keep thinking of is you know we have these female coaches saying I'm only going to hire women where are the male coaches saying why are you hiring me for this job instead of this qualified woman here like why is a man more qualified to coach women than a woman is to coach women or the male coaches hiring women yeah you know i mean i can yeah. understand a man saying yeah hire me yeah and um, any, any man thinking about this like you can be on the right side of history with this conversation you know mm-hmm. you can help us you know whether it's hiring that woman who needs this opportunity or stepping down which i think is less likely to happen but that's not gonna happen a girl can dream (laughs) well you know every job i've ever had um save for one i was hired by a man a man literally at the start of my career i think i was either the first or second woman hired at the flint journal um god rest his soul he took a risk hiring me and he told me that it wasn't a risk that he hired me he knew i'd be fine but Mm -hmm. the crap he took from the others like you had a spot open for a sports writer and you took a woman or a girl actually didn't even give me that much credit and you know that internal pressure you know the good old boy network all that other context you know i've been a very proud member of the association for women in sports media for a long time and christine brennan and some of uh, as we call them the older sisters who started it they really knocked down some doors starting in 1989 for us and you know when i was president and chair of the board having the conversations with the sports editors i decided i want to talk to the people that make the hiring decisions because mm-hmm. we have no women that are in these capacities and you know right now we're down to about from what i've been told about seven sports editors female sports editors in this country and even smaller for women of color things like that so you know when you talk about needing men as allies it's a little more to the point than this mm-hmm. if the if women can knock on the door and apply but if a man does not decide that he wants to use his um institutional credit within his peers to, to hire one of us then there's nothing we can do about it other than we can complain or whatever and but at the end knocking. he needs somebody who says i believe in this and you are the right person and we're going to go for it mm-hmm. and i want to give credit to my own dad uh, yes. Vince Doyle, who was a uh, very well-known sports broadcaster in, in Detroit. And uh, at the time that I was offered an opportunity by CBS uh, Detroit TV uh, to become one of the first women TV sports broadcasters in the country, and the year was 1978, and I mm-hmm. did that 1978 to 1984. But my dad was the president of the Detroit Sports Broadcasters Association at the moment. And when I was offered that job, he told me, absolutely take this job. And he also said, absolutely, you have to go in those locker rooms. But what I didn't know until years later, and I heard it from Jerry Green and some people, uh, sports, very well-known journalists here, who, who told me 
that my dad took a whole lot of heat mm-hmm. from the other men mm-hmm. who basically said to him, you've got to stop her. She's going to ruin it for us. They were afraid that the teams would never they let women in. Afraid. They afraid. Well, they feared that the teams would never let women in. And if a woman in my position who had credentials demanded it, that they would keep all the women out. And so, like, she's going to wreck it for everybody. Keep all and, the media uh, out. They were that, afraid for themselves, no, too. No, yeah. th- no, that's what yeah. they meant. They would yeah. they would lose that inner access. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and my dad, uh, he used to say, you know, Annie's been a problem from the time she was about three years old. I mean, I ju- I know. I just can't stop her. And then he'd turn around and be like, do it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, and, and that's the lesson that, you know, you, we got to tell people is either be afraid of us or get out of our way or help us. Or stand with us. Yes. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Well, so- and in terms of, you know, women getting together and, you know, being a strong force, Anne was just in a... Uh, leadership conference um, in Toronto, the IWF. Yep. And I was wondering if you could maybe tell us a couple things about that. Yeah, I would love to mention just a couple of things because um, the International Women's Forum is an organization of 7,000 now um, change agents, trailblazers, um, incredibly accomplished women all over the world. And they get together two times a year for a global conference. And I get turbocharged just mm-hmm. buying with being with these women and we were just in Toronto for the global conference there were 1100 women there and um, the, the topics are fantastic I mean we're really looking at global issues through a female lens and so instead of you know three men on the panel and one woman it's three women and, and one man and men are included in these conversations but uh, two things that I want to mention is one is we inducted two women into the Hall of Fame we always do that and these were two women who just won the Nobel Prize. Whoa. And Right, <laughs> both of them. Um, and um, Dr. Frances Arnold, who is an American, she won the Nobel Prize. She just won it in chemistry, one of the few women ever to win that. I think Marie Curie was the, <laughs> was the other one. That person. <laughs> that person, you know. And then uh, Canadian Dr. Donna Strickland, and, and she won it for physics. And uh, that's the caliber of people that we get to be around. Um, and then they also have um, something called Wabin, which is the, uh, their program for elite athletes who are also invited to these conferences. It's a one-year-long program. And these are, you know, athletes who have made it to the top of their sport. They won Olympic medals and all that kind of thing. But then they're needing some mentoring and help as they transition to what's next after sports. Have you heard about that, Joanne? I have, and, and thankfully, you know, I've heard wonderful things about it, and it is a really interesting, you know, men, you know, you know, NBA or NFL, they have players associations that have basically transitioned to real-life programs, but because women's sports at high level is still relatively new, there aren't as many solid pathways for women to enter to get into the other side. And, you know, the diversity of women's sports, I was looking at the list that's being mentored for 2019. You have someone from Ultimate Frisbee. Yeah. You've wow. got polo players. You've yeah. got swimmers. You've got skiers. So Women's it, wrestling. You yes. know, r- women's, uh, yeah, they're t- women's rugby. Everything. So it's not necessarily the pathways where you can go pro and make money or whatever. These are like, I did this truly for the love of being elite and serving my country and all this other stuff. So to have an ability to have a link with somebody who can help you maybe figure out a way to best use those leadership skills and the intensity into your new life, 
that's that's really amazing. So mm-hmm. I wanted to ask you about the group. What, so you get you say you get turbocharged. <laughs> what is how does that manifest? What do they do to give you that brain and emotional soul food? Well, the, there's two ways that they do it. One is is by the topics that that they have. I mean, uh, on on the stage, and they bring in some of the top experts in the world, and they really have cutting edge conversations. And two that I'll mention is one we had an incredible conversation about gender. And uh, hearing from um, several individuals who have transitioned and, and hearing them stand up on the stage and talk about, here's a picture of me as a little boy, but that's not who I was inside. Mm-hmm. And to tell you their story um, in a very powerful way. And, and we had another um, female with her mother talking about that whole experience of how she remembered that little boy as a mm-hmm. child and the transition and the support that she gave to and the, the father gave to that ch- girl. And she had an incredible line. This mother said, um, you know, about, you know, how she felt. And she said, I wasn't invested in her gender. I was invested in her humanity. Mm. And I just like, wow, what a thing for a parent to say. That's you know, amazing. so powerful. Yeah. And, and this mother said when people criticize her or come to her, she'll say to them, what is it about this that affects your life? Well, and we've had, you know, transgender people on this podcast before. And, you know, we mentioned, you know, inclusionary feminism. You know, feminism doesn't just mean women. Feminism just doesn't mean women and male allies. It means everybody who's out there for us, you know, and having a trans man and a trans woman on this podcast before, it's like they are feminists. They are as much part of this as anybody else. So we could go on and on and on. And the last thing I'll mention is I also, um, uh, Pat um, Mitchell was there. I don't know if you've ever heard of Pat Mitchell, but I think she was the CEO of the Public Broadcasting Network for a long time. But she has a new book that just came out. It's called Becoming a Dangerous Woman, (laughs) Embracing Risk to Change the World. And uh, isn't that what this is all about? I mean, claiming your power is becoming a woman who's dangerous enough to change the status quo. It's a risk, but it's worth it. You bet. Absolutely. All right. Well, um, thank you so much, Joanne Gerstner, uh, uh, for being with us. Uh, I'm Ann Doyle. I'm Monica Doyle. Um, and thanks, Joanne, again. Um, her book is Back in the Game, Why Concussions uh, does why a concussion doesn't have to end your athletic career. Um, can you tell us how to get in contact with you if anybody's interested? Yes. Uh, the book is available at Amazon, so if you want to get it, you can fire it up there. And also, if you want to find me, I'm at Michigan State, so you can just you know, Google me, and I will pop up. So and you have a website. I do have a website, and I'm on Twitter, Joanne C. Gerstner. So I am very public forward-facing, so awesome. I don't hide very well. So <laughs> come find me. And well, a great keynote speaker. Thanks for being with us today. I'm Monica Doyle. I'm Ann Doyle, and, and let's, let's all go, go power, power up. Thanks for joining us at Powering Up. We hope you'll subscribe and share us with your network. Anne and I would love to hear from you through the Powering Up Women Facebook page. And remember, power is the currency for getting things done. Claim yours and put it to work.